Father in heaven, we're so grateful for this time now in the study of Scripture. And we pray that as we study, divine enlightenment would be given us by the Spirit of God. Lord, this is no ordinary book, and we are not sufficient to handle it. So we pray that you would speak to us, give us wisdom, give us humility, and reveal yourself to us through your word, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, Matthew, I'm going to ask you to turn to Matthew chapter 23. Matthew chapter 23. And the first few verses, few verses read like this. Then Jesus spoke to the multitudes and to his disciples, saying, The scribes and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. Therefore, whatever they tell you to observe, that observe and do. But do not do according to their works, for they say and do not do. Now here he's laying the groundwork for what he's about to do. And he goes through a, a succession of woes. Woe to you Pharisees, hypocrites, on a variety of different uh, areas does he pronounce these woes. And uh, ultimately, uh, Jesus is here teaching for the last day in the temple. So the setting is, is very important. But the directness of his speech is something that we can't pass over. I wonder if one of our panelists could give us some insight as to why you think Jesus is being so direct in this particular instance. Who would like to begin? All right, Vicki, thank you. Uh, I was reviewing this this morning, and as a former Catholic, uh, this chapter just jumped out at me. Jesus isn't just speaking to them. He's going through the stream of time, and there are two things that I think are very important here. First of all, he sees through the stream of time that many of these very same priests are going to be converted at Pentecost, and that, that, that brings hope, and, and that gives clarity to the reason that he's doing this, but also... The, he is addressing the taproot of a pagan system here. And in every one of those eight woes, there is a doctrinal error that is the root system of Catholicism. So the ecclesiastical authority, uh, call no one father, priestly power, let he who is greatest be your servant, keys of the kingdom. Jesus said, you take away the key of knowledge and, and the keys, uh, the words of life, the word of God is the key of knowledge. Tradition versus the word, verses 16 through 18. Righteousness by faith and obedience by faith, verse 23. Lawlessness, verse 28. Worship of saints, relics, and indulgences, verse 28. And long prayers, the claim of auricular confession, verse 14. So in this chapter in particular, I see Jesus looking through the stream of time helping us to deeply address the false system that is going to cause misery and defeat and agony in the lives of so many. And our Catholic friends uh, need to understand, and these, this is a launching place for deep study in these areas. Amen. Yes, Israel. I think it's important for us to understand here, uh, Jesus is getting ready to, you know, die on the cross. And the price that Christ paid for sin is the greatest price anyone could ever pay. I mean, he paid his eternal life for our eternal life. And so I think if there's anything that this text shows us is how seriously Jesus takes the salvation of humanity. He doesn't want people to mess with the salvation of souls. And what Jesus is expressing here is that when he has paid such a great, or when he's about to pay such a great and hefty price for the salvation of an, of an individual, 
it's important for the church and for church leaders to take this responsibility seriously. Jesus says, look, I've paid with my own life. And he says, don't dare take these souls that I've labored for, that I've uh, died for, and treat them casually. Don't make them worse than when they first came to you for sal- uh, to lead them to salvation. Don't make them worse uh, after they've met you than before they've met you. And over and over and over again, Jesus is addressing this very same thing. I've paid the salvation. I've paid for the salvation of these souls. I've entrusted them to you, and it is your responsibility to make sure that you assist me in the work of leading them to the place where they get a clear picture of who God is and who Jesus is instead of a warped one. And so this is why I think that Jesus speaks so strongly. He's speaking strongly against people who are messing up with the work that Jesus himself is doing. You know, the, uh, the passage says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, over and over. But if you look at the first verse, it says, Then Jesus spoke to who? To the multitudes. To the multitudes and to his disciples. So he wasn't just speaking to the Pharisees. There was something in here he was also wanting the multitudes to hear as well, I think. Yeah, Daniel. Yes, when, um, as, you, as you have mentioned, when you look at verses 1 through 12, he's talking to the multitude and the disciples. And the reason why he's very direct with them is that he's, he's showing the condition of the people. And as you go through these eight woes, you will see that he will refer to the Pharisees and the scribes as blind guides or blind fools or blind. And the reason is that is that even Paul alludes to that in Romans chapter 2, verse 19, where he says that you were supposed to be the guide for the blind Gentiles, but yet they failed at their duty. So here he's speaking to the multitude and making sure they understand that they cannot be like them, that we are supposed to be guiding the people to the truth, as Israel has mentioned, of the truth of salvation, the truth of the gospel. And here, as we even go further from verse 13, he will tell them that, look, you will hide righteousness from the people, which is the righteousness of the grace of God in Jesus Christ and his salvation. So he's just warning them not to continue in the same path. Yeah, I was just, you'd mentioned like verse 1 through 12 addresses the people, but he's addressing the people about the leadership. And then verse 13, so the first 12 verses goes to to the people about their leaders, and then specifically he goes directly to the leaders in the next 27 verses, the rest of the chapter. And I believe the reason he's addressing this has already been touched on a little bit, is that people, and this is no different today, put a lot more confidence in their leaders than they should. These, these people were so Im- influenced, they had such a blind trust in their leadership that Jesus himself wasn't able to have the impact that he needed to have on their understanding of truth. And so, in fact, up to this point in his ministry, and this is right before the cross, had he denounced his leadership like this, he probably would have lost a lot more of a following because of the, the, you know, at this point they had seen his working and now there were questions in their minds and I think his strong denunciation was to try to prepare them for what he saw coming that they didn't see coming so that they wouldn't be shaken when, when he saw those leaders completely abandon him to the cross of Calvary. You know, I think about many times I've preached a series of evangelistic meetings and uh, somebody will come under conviction about some truth that's new to them. The Sabbath is a perfect example. And it will be just resounding in their hearts and they'll just see the clarity of it. It makes perfect sense. And then all of a sudden you see uh, a bit of 
perplexity, uh, some cognitive dissonance going on in their head. And then they talk to you afterwards and say, you know, it makes sense, but Pastor Bob, he's my pastor. He's, he's such a godly man. I mean, if anybody would know this, it would be my pastor. And then they start thinking about the people on TV and others that they have, have trusted and put confidence in, and it creates a major problem. That's why faithfulness of leadership is so important. That's why God holds to a higher uh, level of accountability leadership, because there is a, a desire, a natural desire, and a, and a natural way of things where you should have confidence in your leadership, but they have to gain that confidence through the Word and through their faithfulness to the Word. And uh, so we can run into the same trap here. Which brings me to another question. You know, uh, whenever I sit in a Sabbath school and I visit churches around the conference, um, nobody likes the Pharisees. I mean, nobody thinks they're a Pharisee. Nobody wants to be a Pharisee. We run from the Pharisees. We talk about the other Pharisees. I mean, everybody is upset at the pharisaical attitude that other people have. And we are sure that if there's one thing we don't want to be, it's a Pharisee. So why are we even reading this chapter? What do you think? Should we just skip over chapter 23? Since none of us are Pharisees. Or is there anything at all that we can glean from these eight woes on the Pharisees that we should apply and be careful of and cautious of in our own lives here in the Seventh-day Adventist Church, part of the Remnant Church, here at the end of time, how should we apply these passages to our own lives and to the church? It's, it's interesting to me how over and over, along with those woes, the words that keep coming up, which repetition is the way in which the Bible emphasizes uh, the importance of a point, over and over again you find words like fools, blind, etc., etc., and as I was reading this passage, there's another verse that came to mind, and it's found in the book of Revelation, Revelation chapter 3. And in Revelation chapter 3, Jesus is speaking to the church of Laodicea, and it says in verse 17, Because you say, I am rich, have become wealthy, and have need of nothing, and do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked, he says, I offer you to buy of me gold tried in the fire, etc., if there's a definition of foolishness to me, it's a person who does not understand the condition that they're in. Uh, even rich people uh, have need of something. And here you have a rich church that has need of nothing. Uh, you have a church that is completely self-deceived. You have a church that doesn't understand the reality of what's going on. I look at this church as an insane church and a, a church that is foolish, people that, that are foolish. And it says that this church in Laodicea, it's, it is a blind church. And so uh, as often as we, and as much as we hate the Pharisees, I think it's important for us to understand how much of that Pharisee spirit is in each one of us. I mean, if it hadn't been, Jesus would have come by now. And so I think that uh, more than anything, Matthew chapter 23, it speaks, yes, it speaks about the people out there. It speaks about you know, the, the ministers out there, it speaks about the church, the churches and the people out there, but it also speaks about us. It speaks about me. It speaks about us individually, people who uh, are in the church of Laodicea. Um, before the next comment, let's 
just look at verse 16, because we've had a couple of references to it, but I want you to see it right from the Scripture. Woe to you, blind guides, who say, whoever swears by the temple, it is nothing, but whoever swears by the gold of the temple, he is obliged to perform it. Fools and blind, for which is greater, the gold or the temple that sanctifies the gold? So this is the passage that's been referenced where Jesus refers to these Pharisees as blind guides and as being fools. And then in verse 24 and 25, it also says again, blind. And then verse 26, blind. Over yes. and over, we have blind. blind. Amen. And just to follow up with um, Pastor Ramos, um, we have to have, this is a reality, that the church of Laodicea is our condition. Um, and, you know, when you look at uh, the issue of the blindness, matter of fact, in the book of Matthew, the, the word blind is mentioned 24 times the most out of all the Gospels. And remember, uh, when Matthew is writing, he's writing to the Jewish people. And so this is why we have to realize that, look, even though we believe as Seventh-day Adventists that we're God's people, don't be, don't, don't, uh, you have to realize that we are in this condition of lukewarmness. And so we have to realize that we, we can't escape. And I'm just going to read a quote from Desire of Ages, and she says, Many follow in the track of the Pharisees. They revere those who have died for their faith. They wonder at the blindness of the Jews in rejecting Christ. Had we lived in his day, they declare, we would gladly have received his teaching. We would never have been partakers in the guilt of those who reject the Savior. But when obedience to God requires self-denial and humiliation... These very persons strifle their convictions and refuse obedience. Thus, they manifest the same spirit as did the Pharisees whom Christ condemned. So if we don't practice self-denial and we're not humble to the teachings of Christ, we're just like them. So we, there's no escape. So here, Jesus, that's why when you look at Matthew chapter 23, it's really applying to God's people today. All right. You, yeah, you I, on that? it's interesting to me. Anytime we talk about the Pharisees, the common understanding with the Pharisee is Pharisees did too much. And, and to be a Pharisee is the one, the, the guy who's a Pharisee is the one who goes over the top in what he does. You've got to do less to be balanced or whatever we want to, uh, word we want to use. But Jesus says right here in the very first part, the scribes and Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. Therefore, whatever they tell you to observe, that observe and do, but do not according to their works, for they say and do not do. So Jesus here actually says, if you don't want to be a Pharisee, you need to do more, not less. Isn't that right? That's what he's saying. And what's interesting to me about that is, is the Pharisees, like it says in verse 14, um, they, 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 for a pretense, they make long prayers. Uh, they go into widows' houses. Uh, in other places, they like greetings in the marketplace. All their works are done to be seen of men. The Pharisees' religion was a religion that was to try to help other people know that they were spiritual. But what's interesting about the Pharisees is their obedience was not a full obedience. It was a partial obedience. They obeyed in the, in the Anais and the Mint and the, and the Cumin when they, when they made these, pay these tithes because... In their estimation, or I guess in the, custom, in the culture that they were in, that made them appear religious. So they did things that made them appear religious, but they left out the essential things. And I'm going to get real practical here for a moment. 
but it's kind of like the difference between Sabbath worship service and prayer meeting. Sabbath worship service is required. I mean, you can't be a good Adventist, but you got to go to church, right? you got to show up at church. But prayer meeting is optional in the mind of a lot of people. And so your prayer meeting attendance isn't quite what the church attendance is. And that's why Ellen White says it's an indicator of the true spirituality of the church as is the pulse to the body. She says that the, the prayer meeting attendance is like the pulse to the body. And if a church only has a few, it's like the body's dying, right? A very low pulse. Why is, why is that an indicator? Because it's an indicator of what a person really spiritually values, right? Church service, you got to be there. The Pharisees did what you had to do, what everybody could see, but when it came to real spirituality, they left it out. That was a little close to home. <laughs> Pastor Cameron said this morning we were going to have that kind of stuff here at Kansas. <laughs> Amen. Is it possible to share something else again? Yes, it okay. is. Okay. Just, just so you know, when you look at the teachings of Christ, he always will teach people about salvation. And also, when you accept salvation, you modify your behavior. And when you look at, when you look at this chapter, it's dealing with the behavior of the Jews. And what we, what we have to think is that the condition that we are in right now is that we, we want to hear about Jesus, we want to hear about salvation, but when it comes to modifying behavior, we're like, okay, don't talk about this. And so when you, if, if, we, if Jesus was speaking these eight woes right now, would we feel comfortable hearing about our behavior? You know, and that's where we have to realize that it's not just only accepting um, salvation, it's also living a life reflecting Jesus Christ in a daily basis. I'm so grateful and comfortable. Amen? That means the convicting power of God. The Bible says, pray to your Father in secret, and your Father which seeth in secret you openly. That's not just that the second coming. It's the character change that comes when we just are broken before God. And at the core of our being, we know that we need him, and we look at his greatness, and we magnify him, and we see that we are nothing. Thank God for that today. Amen. I'd like to share a little passage from Steps to Christ, speaking about the way that Jesus communicated uh, directly. It says, Jesus did not suppress one word of truth, but he uttered it always in love. He exercised the greatest tact and thoughtful kind attention in his intercourse with the people. He was never rude, never needlessly spoke a severe word, never gave needless pain to a sensitive soul. He did not censure human weakness. He spoke the truth, but always in love. He denounced hypocrisy. That's what he's doing right here in Matthew 23, right? He denounced hypocrisy, unbelief, and iniquity, but tears were in his voice as he uttered his scathing rebukes. He wept over Jerusalem, the city he loved, which refused to receive him the way, the truth, and the life. And in this very passage, this is where she's referencing. Because here's denouncing the hypocrisy, but then look at verse 37 of chapter 23, and what do we find? Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. Here Jesus reveals his true heart. That even though these are some of the sternest statements you'll find him make in all of Scripture in chapter 23, right after that, you read this passage where he reveals that the only reason he's doing this is because he has longed, he has yearned 
to gather under his wings, so to speak. The very leaders that he's speaking to, he wants to save them. His heart is burdened for them. And we should never come at people in a way that seeks to model ourselves after Matthew 23 unless we're able to also understand our heart is patterned after the end of Matthew 23 and the desire to see the salvation of souls. So I'm so thankful for that passage and helping us to know the true heart of Jesus. Well, I'd like to move on to Matthew 24, and uh, we're very familiar with Matthew 24 as the great signs of the end uh, chapter, and here we see uh, some awful realities in Matthew chapter 24. It speaks of uh, in verse 6, wars and rumors of wars. It talks in verse 7 against nation, rising against nation, kingdom against kingdom. It speaks of famines, pestilences, earthquakes. Uh, it talks about love uh, growing cold and lawlessness abounding and many, many very uh, fearful things. But what encouragement can the church who is alive at the end of time gain from these signs? Is there anything in this passage in Matthew 24 to verse 14 that we can gain encouragement from? Vicki, do you have anything to say? <laughs> I've tried to be really quiet to get my time. I've been waiting for this. Carry um, on. <laughs> I, I, I have been especially noting in this chapter the lifestyle implications of what is called marginless living, no boundaries, as a core of end-time unpreparedness. How many of you want to wake up in the morning with a desire to fail everything on your list? No, nobody wants to do that. Nobody wants to be unprepared. But without margins in our life, we're failing. And so note some of these verses. Look at the, let's look at the causes and uh, it, Matthew 24, 7 and, uh, 37 and 38, eating, drinking, did not know, as it was in the days of Noah. They did not know. Verse 43, if the master had known. Verse 44, an hour when you do not expect. 49, eating and drinking with the drunkards. 50, is not looking, is not aware. Compare with Luke 21, 34, weighted down with surfeiting, gluttony, drunkenness, and the cares of this life, and it took them unawares. How have we transitioned from such strong warnings to being so clueless, absolutely clueless? I believe there are three reasons, and I believe there's a solution. How many of you would like the solution? You want to know the reasons? I think we're over busy, over, over scheduled, and about to snap. It is fitting for a society with urgency at as its emblem, to have tranquilizers as its addiction. We are in the age of envy and discontent and the era of hyper-living. We are just skimming the surface of life. We've got to simplify. It's time to declutter. Paradoxical as it may seem, that even though progress gives us more leisure, the leisure is not leisurely. It is jammed with multitasking actions and expectations, watching TV while surfing the net, while checking email, while eating a hamburger, while listening to the phone ring, while conversing with the family. I have caught myself way too many times on the way home from work to go home and work some more, checking emails at a red light. 
this is wrong. <laughs> so here, 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 here is the situation. We've got to simplify our lives. Type 1, type D, distressed. Um, it's time to declutter. It's time to simplify our lives. And it is time to receive quadruple bypass. We've got to bypass Pizza Hut, bypass Arby's, bypass Dunkin' Donuts, bypass McDonald's. I'm going to read a quote to finish my little section here I've been vying for. When the laws of nature... Now listen to this. It's speaking to my heart, which is why I'm sharing with you. 20 years of bulimia and years and years of battling appetite of all kinds. When the laws of nature are disregarded, the most ennobling, grand, and glorious themes of God's word seem but idle tales. Satan can then easily snatch away the good seed that has been sown in the heart for the soul is in no con condition to comprehend or understand. Sure, I can take a selfie and post it on Facebook with an inspirational quote, but friends, the superficial students will be lost. It is thus that selfish, health-destroying indulgences are counteracting the influence of the message, which is to prepare a people for the great day of God, not a soul whose life is one of self, careless self-degradation through transgression of physical laws will stand in that great day of trial before us. There's a terrible account to be rendered by those who have but little regard for the human body and treat it ruthlessly. True religion and the laws of health go hand in hand. God doesn't want us to live under a label. He wants us to have a life. He wants us to be free on the inside. And as our brother was speaking this morning of, of missions, I thought of the selfish indulgences that I still engage in when I could be putting money into God's work. May God help me so that I can speak clarity and truth in this issue. Amen? I'm so grateful that even though we have lots of warnings here in Matthew 23 and 24 about being prepared and ready for the end, that anytime you hear a warning, it's evidence that there's still hope. Amen. And we're grateful in the Seventh-day Adventist Church to have a wonderful message of health that is for the very purpose of helping us to be prepared for the end. So thank you for reminding us of that. Um, you did answer that about two of my uh, questions early, but I'll forgive you. Um, <laughs> I want to come back to verses 1 through, I know you were excited, and it was really good. It was really good. Especially that quadruple bypass. Especially, part. yeah, that, that was a line to keep uh, for the rest of the day. Now, verses 1 to 14, um, all of these, and, and you, can, you can go beyond verse 14, but I, I want to know specifically, what encouragement can we draw from these signs of the end? Is there anything in here that we who are alive at the end can draw from this? My favorite part of that uh, passage is in verse 6. It says, and you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. And then that next sentence is so powerful. See that you are not troubled, it says. For all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. Uh, you know, usually when um, in my home, when a warning was given, it was because trouble was ahead. And that wasn't, it wasn't meant to be an encouragement. Um, and so I'm glad here that when Jesus is talking about what it's going to be taking place in the future, he's telling that to us for the purpose uh, of us being able to experience peace in a time of trouble. And I find this to be very, very encouraging that every time something happens in this world, 
and we are uh, tempted to focus on that thing, Jesus is saying, no, 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 no. I'm telling you this ahead of time so that you remember that these things will not trouble you. They won't trouble you because you understand the fact that although these things are taking place, Jesus is always stronger than the devil. And this is one, this is in Jesus prophesying that uh, this, he's uh, giving us an example of this very fact. He's telling us the future before it takes place. He's trying to uh, point us to his supernatural ability and power. The fact that God is uh, all-powerful should be something that encourages us uh, because it should give us a clear understanding that no matter what takes place in this world, it's simply a fulfillment of what Jesus has already said, and he's already provided an answer for that. And so he says, when wars begin to take place, when all these famines begin to take place, when the world begins to crumble, he says, don't let these things tr uh, trouble you. They're just uh, simply a fulfillment of something that I've already said, and they are simply uh, a problem that I've already answered. Amen. Amen. Anybody else on the panel want to answer that before we... I'd like to pick up, I, I like Israel's point. I was just reading in Desire of Ages about the, the crucifixion and how Jesus was perfectly calm through that whole process. And you know, I think in light of what Israel was saying about the prophecy, when the Apostle Paul was told by the prophet Agabus, you remember he came and he bound up his hands with a leather belt and he said, the man who owns this belt is going to be bound this way in Jerusalem. And some people have said, oh, that means the, the Holy Spirit told Paul not to go to Jerusalem. That's not what he told him. He just told him what was going to happen to him when he got there so that Paul could have that perfect trust. And, and Jesus wasn't spared from the cross, but yet he had that perfect trust. And that's what we're seeing here is Jesus is foretelling what's coming so that when we see these kind of things, we know, hey, my father has this thing in control. He's told me before he knows everything that's going to happen, and he's promised victory. The, the mind thinks, the mouth moves, and the man goes. It's time for us to speak what we know instead of what we feel, to dig deep in the Word of God, because we're promised that those who place themselves under God's control to be led and guided by Him will catch the steady tread of events ordained by Him to take place. We don't have to live in fear. We can have a wellspring of joy uh, because our faith is not grounded in circumstances and people and places and things. It's placed in God. And when we have Him, we have everything we need. Um, I, I do want to share, like, in verse 3, when uh, in, the, in Matthew 24, it says, Now as he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately, saying, Tell us, when will these things be, and what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? And what I like about that, you see the opposite of what happened in uh, Matthew 23, where you had people who were, uh, had this image, this outward appearance that they knew God, but yet you had the disciples who really wanted to know, who was at the feet of Jesus Christ and wanted to know what will be your sign of your coming. You could see the desire of his, his disciple. And I believe that as Christians, as Seventh-day Adventists, we should have a desire to know these signs. And we hear it all the time in different evangel evangelistic meetings, all the different signs. But we have to understand that in this chapter, uh, uh, the destinies of souls depend on the content of this chapter. And uh, just to read a quote here from a uh, gospel worker, she says, the 24th chapter of Matthew is presented to me again and again as something that is to be brought to the attention of all. We are today living in the time 
when the prediction of this chapter are fulfilling, let our ministers and teachers explain these prophecies to those whom they instruct. Let them leave out of their discourses matters of minor consequence and present the truths that, that will decide the destiny of souls. So this, is, this chapter, the content of this chapter, needs to be preached again and again. This should be our desire. And matter of fact, she also says to teachers, charge the teachers in our schools to prepare the students for what is coming upon the world. Not only for our adults, but our young people need to know what's happening. And we see things all the time and prophecies being fulfilled right in our television, and yet our young people don't know. So here, this is why it's so important to um, study this chapter. Thank you. That was that was very well said. And, you know, this passage with all of its uh, signs, um, we all know from sharing this with uh, friends or you hear it in evangelistic meetings that these are things that have happened for years and years and years. But in Matthew 24, it very clearly states that these are the beginning of sorrows or birth pangs. So we need to understand that the frequency and intensity of these signs is only going to grow our young people need to understand that the frequency is only going to grow, and we need to know that all of that just means that the end is nearer than when we first believed, and Jesus is in control. And if there's one thing as evangelism coordinator that really makes me thankful, it's verse 14. It says, this gospel of the kingdom will be, did you catch those two words? Will be preached in all the world as a witness to all the nations, and then the end will come. We have that encouragement that the work that we are carrying out will be completed, and uh, we're grateful for that. Now, immediately after this comes a whole section of instruction, and many of you have studied into this and understand that there were many uh, who heard Jesus' instruction, who lived in Jerusalem, who were saved because they obeyed His instruction in verses 15 and onward, where He speaks about the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place. And then he even, it even says, whoever reads, let him understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let him who is on the housetop not go down to take anything out of his house, uh, etc. Verse 20, that great Sabbath text, and pray that your flight may not be in winter or on the Sabbath. How are these pieces of instruction that were so helpful in those days, how do they help us who are living here at the end of time? Does this work now? Um, pray that your flight be not in the winter. Wonderful book by Emil Andreessen addresses. We understand why not to run somewhere on, in the wintertime. It's in Michigan. It's very cold and the way people drive. But what about on the Sabbath day? That's, that creates a question in our minds. And I love what Andreessen says. I love what Andreessen says that for those who cherish those sacred hours, they are loath to lose the comfort of the, that sacred, precious time and have anything else cluttering their minds, like fleeing for their lives. And that really brings it home to me practically today. So going to church and then going to Chili's for lunch is not a model that I want to follow. And it's happening. And so let's cherish these hours of the Sabbath. Do I really want to start out on my vacation during the Sabbath hours? Do I want to go out eating and engaging in commerce during the Sabbath hours? What does the Sabbath really mean to me? It's sacred time. 
Amen. Uh, one of the things that comes to my mind, if you do a, a study in the Scripture on that word abominations, and God had always warned His people about the abominations of the nations, it was their idolatrous practices. And those practices separated them from God and led them to be prey to the enemy. And that's exactly, if you, if you read into the situation, you may remember it, it, Israel at Baal Peor, right before they crossed into the Promised Land, when King uh, Balak wanted to get Balaam the prophet to curse Israel, and uh, Balaam couldn't do it. You remember that? And so Balaam came up with an idea. Balaam realizes, realized that if he could get the people of God caught up into the idolatrous practices of the world, it would separate them from God and make them open prey to the enemy. And I think that this abomination of desolation is that, uh, without going into great detail, I asked Daniel, he, these guys wouldn't answer because they're looking at the clock and said, well, this is going to take too long to really get into all of it. But the general gist of it, I think, is the worldliness that is sweeping uh, through. That's basically what you were just touching on, Vicki. That is leaving us open prey to the enemy. We have time. Go ahead. Oh, we do. Um, Matthew, actually the instruction, for me, the instruction that Jesus is giving his disciples uh, begins a little bit before uh, verse 15, and, and you addressed in verse 14, I think you can pull it all the way up to verse 13. It says, but he who endures to the end shall be saved, and this gospel of the kingdom will be preached into all the world. And then he goes on with the rest of the instruction. Uh, first of all, what I love about Jesus is that he always uh, instructs us on what we need to do for that specific time. In other words, he gives us clear instructions on how it is that we're to respond in every moment of our lives, whether they're happy moments or troublesome moments, as it is here in Matthew 24. And I love how he starts. He's going to tell us to do all these other things, but he gives us here uh, a very foundational and fundamental principle that I think it's important for us when it comes to uh, following and obeying God. It says the first command, the first and foremost command is the command of endurance. Endure in a time of coldness. Endure in a time of trouble. Endure in a time of tribulation. This, uh, this foundation of enduring is something that Jesus is driving home. We cannot do everything else if we don't have this uh, ability to endure. And so Jesus says it's important for us to endure until the end. And he says, look, you're going to have ups and downs. You're going to go through crazy times. But the issue here is not so much how you perform in each individual task, but the fact that you endure all the way until the end. And it says here, the promise is that he that endures until the end, the same shall be saved. How is it that we can endure until the end? There, verse 14 tells us, the gospel of the kingdom will be preached into all the world. And so whenever we are tempted to focus on what is taking place in this world, it is simply an indication of the fact that we are focusing on what is taking place in the world instead of on the command that Jesus has given to us. And this should be a test for us in our individual lives. If we're worried about who's going to become the next president of the United States, if we are worried about when the next earthquake is going to hit California, if we're worried about when the next big fire is going to crawl up from Florida all the way to Michigan, then that simply means that we're not following and taking heed to the command that he's given us in verse 14, to proclaim the gospel of the kingdom to the entire world. And so I think when we focus on the commands that Jesus is giving us from 15 onward, it must be after or on top of the foundation that he's given to us to endure and to preach. You think you, you, think you haven't gotten your miracle? Endurance is a miracle. It's a miracle in a brown wrapper. 
you know, the flesh is a sparkler, but the spirit is an investor. And if God has given you the strength to endure, that's a miracle. And we can thank God for that every day. Just to um, piggyback off Pastor Ramos here, uh, when you look at, again, when you look at this chapter where we're wanting, we're wanting to be obedient to God's instruction, you see the disciples ask the question, what would be the signs? And Jesus, in another account in the book of Luke, chapter 21, when he's talking about the same account, that he says, look, when you see the abomination of desolation that's going to take place, when the Roman army, Cestius and his armies will come, then you know that it's time to flee to the mountains. Now, the question is, were they obedient? Yes, they were obedient. And that's the, that's the issue here. When you look at what God has shared with us, he says, look, just be obedient to my words. So when you see certain signs, know that it's time to prepare because the coming of Jesus is coming soon. So it's the same application for us today. There are things that are happening in this world today that we see certain signs. And so I'm just going to read a quote here from the testimonies. She says here, um, in Testimony f f uh, Volume 5, page 451, it says, By the decree of enforcing the institution of the papacy in violation of the law of God, our nation will disconnect herself fully from righteousness. When Protestant Protestantism shall stretch her hand across the gulf to grasp the hands of Roman power, when she shall reach over the abyss to clasp hands with spiritualism, spiritualism when under the influence of the threefold unions of our country shall repudiate every principle of its constitution as a Protestant and Republican government and shall make provision for the propagation of papal falsehoods and delusions, then we may know that the time has come for the marvelous working of Satan and the end is near. And she goes further. As the approach of the Roman armies was a sign to the disciples of the appended destruction of Jerusalem, so may this apostasy be a sign to us that the limit of God's forbearance is reached. Folks, have we been seeing that lately? Folks, this is what I'm sharing with you here, is that this is being fulfilled right in front of our eyes. She said it's the same that took place here with the abomination of desolation. So are we ready? Are we paying attention to the signs? And so this is what Jesus is saying, that, look, when you see these things, know that it's coming. Well, we are living in perilous times. But we're so grateful that we have this promise. And I'd like to wrap up our panel with this. Matthew 24 and verse 29. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And He will send His angels with a great sound of a trumpet, and they will gather together His elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. Could you imagine being the disciples, hearing Jesus for the first time describe that that is what is going to happen? We today are nearer than they were. And based on that uh, conclusion that Pastor Daniel has shared, I believe that we all understand that it's time for us to watch and pray and be ready to meet Jesus in peace. 
Let's uh, close this study portion before our final Sabbath school feature. We're going to close this study portion with a word of prayer. Father in heaven, thank you so much for the blessing of your word. Thank you for this Sabbath school quarterly on the, on the book of Matthew and this particular week where we've studied uh, the last days and the signs of the last days. We pray that the warnings, that the encouragement, uh, that the calmness of Jesus' words might resonate in our hearts and might help us to ready ourselves for His soon appearing. Bless each person here, Lord, that the Spirit of God would give them the power and strength they need for victory in each of our lives, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's Word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.